it's going to be a good night because we are finally getting into these New Testament passages that we've been teasing and barely addressing, you know, here and there. Uh, we're finally getting into it, which is great. I know we've been waiting on this for quite a long time. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to start with um, probably the least controversial, but frankly, the most interesting. Okay, this one is the least controversial. Everybody pretty much agrees on this passage, but I'm not so sure that we should. And when we really dig into it, we find out there are like all of these weird nuances and strange kind of, you know, statements and arguments and things like that. Um, so the passage we're going to be talking about, as I told you guys in the email I sent to you, is 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is primarily dealing with the subject of head coverings for women, um, but he's also dealing with like um, issues of male-female relationships, cultural propriety, like all of these different things. It's pretty dang interesting. So what we should do, I think, is to start by reading the passage before we get into any of the questions about it, any of the interpretations of it or anything like that. We'll just begin by reading this. This is 1 Corinthians 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verses 3 through 16. This is from the ESV, the English Standard Version, as we've mentioned, kind of a complementarian version. Um, but yeah, we'll use this and then we'll look at some other passages or translations as well. Says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. Uh oh. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But Oop, lost my spot. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angel's or because of the angels. I feel like that's just thrown in there. Yeah. Because of the because of the angels. <laughs> Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, it is proper for a wife to pray to God for her head uncovered. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be con um, contentious, we have no such patience, nor do the churches of God. Okay. There's a lot in there, right? Yeah. Some interesting stuff. Head coverings, long hair male headship, angels, what the heck? We're going to cover all of this or do our best, okay? Um, what I want to do is I want to um, highlight some of the major interpretive issues with this passage. So kind of like, you know, a quick reading, you could just pick out the major points. But if you start digging in kind of word by word, there's a lot of interesting and frankly confusing things that are going on in this passage. The reason that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church was corrective. There were a bunch of problems, and he's basically like, look, we need to get this stuff sorted out. So he's addressing issues and problems uh, within this congregation. In chapter 11, he is specifically addressing a problem that he sees in the church. The problem is that women are not wearing head coverings. That's your first blank there. Uh, women are not wearing head coverings. Paul writes this passage to encourage women to wear head coverings. Wearing head coverings while they were in church in particular was in keeping with Roman culture. This is like at the expectation of what women wore in the day. And what I uh, hope that you guys will realize is that Paul's topic here in 1 Corinthians 11, also in 1 Corinthians 14, even when we get to 1 Timothy 2, Paul's topic is never male leadership. It's never silencing women. His topic isn't even allowed, like about what women are allowed to do or not. What you're going to discover is he has a much broader focus or point that he's trying to make. And then he says some things that people who believe women should not do this or do that, they grab on to a few of his sayings here. They pull them out and they say, well, there you go. The apostle Paul said this. Yes, he does say that. 
But when we keep it in the original context of the letter as it was written, we see that it maybe doesn't quite mean uh, exactly what they say that it does. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what these head coverings are. Okay, you guys may have seen women even today in 2022 that wear head coverings. Uh, Maybe you've gone to Walmart and you've seen like the ladies who have like the little folded napkin kind of on the back of their uh, head there. Um, maybe you think of, um, Muslim women from different parts of the world and they have this full head scarf, the hijab that they wear. The head coverings in Roman times were somewhere in between that. Okay. So it wasn't just like a small little thing. Like, you know, you might think of the Jewish yarmulke, you know, the little circle hat that Jewish men wear that happened like thousands of years after the old Testament. That was like, not what Paul had in mind. And the female version of this wasn't just a small little square of cloth on your head or circle of cloth, but it also wasn't like a full veil that was covering your whole face. So, um, this is a very famous statue, um, from Rome, from the the first couple of centuries. And what you see here is a couple of things. A, you see the head covering that Paul would have had in mind. Okay, this was like a a veil is the word that's often used, but essentially it was a scarf or a shawl that a, a woman would put over her head. It would cover all or the vast majority of her hair, particularly kind of the long flowing parts. You'll notice here in the photo that um, she has her hair pinned up underneath the the veil or the scarf, the head covering. Right, that was all extremely common. For Roman women, uh, the way that you proved you were a proper lady was you had on this kind of head covering. You did not let your hair down. It was always put up in some kind of way. And then you'll also notice uh, the clothing that she's wearing is um, quite like chaste compared to modern standards. You know what I'm saying? Like if you pay attention here, the only skin that she's really showing is her neck. And that's kind of it. Her arms are covered. Her legs are covered. Her feet would have been covered. Um, Basically, way more of women was covered in their day than it was in our day or than it is in our day. Like you watch movies like The Gladiator, The Gladiator, like Gladiator or um, gosh, where are some of the others? I had these in mind earlier. But anyway, you watch these movies that happen like supposedly in Rome or Greece and ladies are walking around like in these very flowy, loose, barely kind of their um, toga things. You know, they never wear any sort of undergarments or whatever. And it's like, No woman would have ever been seen anywhere in Roman times looking like that. That's a modern convention and invention because they know sex sells, right? But that's not how women dress. This is how women dress, okay? This is an actual statue from the time. This is why we can uh, be reasonably certain that this is accurate because like some artists can draw whatever they think, but this was created at the actual time that um, Paul's letters are written here, okay? So what we want to do um, is we want to um, we want to acknowledge that Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16 is to tell women to wear head coverings when they go to church. Everybody agrees on this. OK, egalitarians believe this. Complementarians believe this. Confused people like we all agree. OK, I understand what he's saying here. Women should wear head coverings. The question is, should every woman wear a head covering? Is this advice that applies only to this particular congregation or only at this time in history? Or is this something that modern women should be doing too? And all of y'all that are here in the room right now are violating the scripture because you don't have one of these veils or head coverings on, okay? Now, there are, of course, a few super conservative groups that say, nope, women need to wear head coverings. I've run into them a few times. Um, Like I'm in like a Calgary Christians Facebook group and every so often they'll jump on and they'll comment about how, you know, this is biblical and you guys are unbiblical and all these different things. Uh, They are extremely conservative, of course. But here's what I can say. I appreciate their consistency. okay? because what we're going to see is that. They interpret first Corinthians 11 the same way they interpret first Corinthians 14. And the, the hermeneutic, the interpretive kind of lens they use is the same. So they treat both of them like, yeah, this is binding and we need to obey it. Women are not supposed to talk in church. And when they show up, they should have a covering on their head, right? Um, I think it's also consistent to say chapter 11 and chapter 14 were cultural and women don't have to follow them today because the interpretive lens is consistent, right? We're arriving at the same conclusion. Where I think it's weird is when we say 
No. Chapter 11, that was cultural. Women don't have to wear head coverings today. That was just for that time in that place. But then we go two chapters later and we say, oh, nope, this is universal. Women cannot talk. They should be silent in the churches. I never let them lead, all of that sort of stuff. And what we're going to discover tonight is that Paul uses the exact same arguments to tell women to wear head coverings in chapter 11 that he does to tell women not to teach in the Corinthian church in chapter 14. And so when we're reading and interpreting the Bible, we have to be consistent in our interpretation. And so um, I think there's a problem when we say 11 is cultural and time bound and you don't have to do it, but 14, you absolutely do. And we'll kind of talk about that um, as we go on tonight. So why were head coverings such a big deal in Corinth? Okay. Um, well, first, uh, as I mentioned, head coverings were cultural indicators of a woman's propriety. That's your next blank, cultural indicators. In their culture, the expectation was proper women with, um, you know, chastity and integrity and all this sort of stuff, they wore a head covering. Now, uh, you might not be super familiar with Corinth, so I want to help a little bit, just put it here on a map for you. Um, Corinth is an ancient port city in Greece. So we're talking about the Mediterranean world. You can see the little dot there. Um, that's where Corinth is. It's just to the east of Italy, of course, to the north of Africa and uh, to the west of, of some of what we call the Eastern Bloc countries or former Eastern Bloc countries. And so it was this um, it was on the western side of Greece or rather the eastern side. And if you wanted to get to uh, Italy, which was obviously kind of the major like that was the heart of the world. Right. That's where Rome was. You had to uh, basically you would go to Corinth so that you didn't have to sail all the way around the Greek countries in order to get over to Italy. Instead, you could like Panama Canal, it just cut right through and basically get to the other side much more quickly. It was a very, very important kind of shipping and distribution hub in the ancient world. And what that meant was there were people from all sorts of different cultures and backgrounds, and they had come to the city of Corinth. Many of them made it their permanent home. And so it was this super crazy mix of beliefs and cultural customs and mores and expectations and, you know, lifestyles and all of those different things. But um, despite the fact that there were all these different cultural issues or, or kind of like um, flavors going on, it was it was pretty well in line with what we see from the rest of the ancient Roman world. So it's in the uh, it's in the country of Greece, of course. And uh, if you remember your world history, the Greeks were in charge. They were the big civilization for a long, long time. They gave us democracy and philosophy and a bit of science and all that stuff. Thank you, guys. Um, then the Romans came along and they conquered the Greeks. And if you remember, if you remember, they basically just took Greek culture, gave it a new name and said, this is our new culture. So they took like Greek gods and gave them Roman names instead. And they're like, this is our new God, right? Uh, they were responsible for giving us like um, the, the road system, the idea of roads and travel and things like that, that we have today. That all came from the Romans. In Greek times, uh, women were incredibly secluded from public life. Okay. When I say incredibly secluded, you're going to think like I'm making this up, but I'm not. You can go read about this stuff in the histories yourself. Okay. So in um, ancient Greece, for instance, uh, women were not citizens, A, which not hard to believe because like it wasn't that long ago that women gained kind of full citizenship in the Western world as well. Uh, they were not allowed to conduct business of any kind. They, they just couldn't do it. They weren't authorized. They had to go through their husband in order to do that. In fact, in the ideal kind of Greek uh, system, women didn't go out of the house without their husband's presence, meaning Amber couldn't go do anything. She couldn't go to the market. She couldn't go visit a friend. She was not supposed to leave the house unless I was there to escort her because she was so beautiful. She was so tempting to the other men that like she couldn't be left alone, essentially. All right. Was it like a dangerous thing? Like, like there was the danger snatched up. Or yeah, totally. It, it's yeah. that and the danger that you would be so seductive to other men. You like what we're gonna see tonight is just the presence of a woman in the ancient world was like enough to get guys riled up. You know what I'm saying? Like they, there are, there are these, um, like, uh, we have these texts from history and there are like instances in which they record like a woman going in public with a bare arm. That's it. Nothing but a bare arm. And it causes essentially a riot among the men because it's so scandalous. They can't control themselves. Like 
her arm is so hot, I've got to have her. Like legitimately, that's how they viewed it. Now, we obviously, we look at other body parts and we tend to sexualize and fetishize those. But the Greeks did it for any sort of skin because women were tucked away. They were hidden. And when you did see them, you never saw any sort of like skin. You just saw coverings, flowing clothes, those sorts of things that kind of hid them. All right. Um, In ancient Greece, women wore full veils. Like it wasn't just like, oh, I had one little head covering and my face was clear. No, no, you were fully veiled. And this is crazy. um, For a long time in Greek history, the the ideal, I mean, we don't know if this was really true or not, but like we have lots of um, instances of Greek writers saying that if you were a virgin woman, that you had no business being outside of your father's house. Like there are um, inscriptions and contracts like marriage contracts from Greek times in which the the father stipulates that his daughter has never left his home, that she has been his prisoner essentially this entire time. Because again, the idea is she, her beauty is reserved for her husband. That's all she exists for. And nobody has the right to even look on her beauty beside her husband. Okay. So this was the dynamic in ancient Greece. The Romans come in, they conquer, they take over, and they change things. Stuff starts to loosen up. Romans got wild, you guys, all right? Um, And so what happens is full veils become head coverings instead, right? Um, Women used to not be able to leave without their husband's presence. In Roman law, they could leave, but they had to have their husband's permission. He couldn't be there, but he had to say, yes, you can go to the market. You could do some basic buying and selling and things like that. Um, Interestingly enough, we think of like ancient Judaism as being very conservative and strict when it comes to women. They were actually fairly relaxed in comparison to ancient Greeks and ancient Romans, all right? Um, So we start to see this loosening of um, gender mores and expectations for women. And right around the first century, we have all of these ancient historical documents where a lot of like leaders and men start freaking out because women are taking even the liberties that they have and they're going further with them, okay? So it's like women are now not just wearing head coverings instead of veils, they're starting to go out in public without head coverings at all. And that's scandalous, all right? Um, In Roman times, you would wear your hair up, like I mentioned. You would wear a hair covering. And if you wore any makeup, which was pretty, it was rare, like there were only two people that wore makeup, two kinds of women, okay? It was either really high-class women or prostitutes. They were the only two in the ancient world that would have worn makeup. And so... um, There started to be all these rules. In fact, the Roman government instituted a bunch of laws that said this is the way women have to dress. And specifically what they did was they delineated how prostitutes had to dress versus non-prostitutes. Okay, And so they actually made a law that said, hey, if you're a hooker, you're a sex worker, that's fine. You do you, girl. But you have to wear your hair down. You cannot wear it up because wearing it up is a sign of like, chastity. It's a lot, it's a sign of integrity. Wearing it down is like, you're down for anything kind of thing, right? They were supposed to not wear a head covering. All of this is designed to help uh, your physical appearance project to the rest of the world what kind of woman you are, okay? That's what's going on in the culture at large around them. And that's why um, Paul makes such a big deal out of this, because in their society, for a woman to show up in church not wear a head covering or to have her hair down. We're going to see later Paul's got issues with them wearing all this fancy makeup and things like that. That's because in their culture, that was indicative of either someone who was flaunting her status and wealth, which is anti-Christian, or someone who was open for some sexual, you know, like fun. And that's also anti-Christian. So Paul is addressing women who are taking after cultural customs in ways that are contrary to the message of Christ, okay? That's the that's the the reason that these um, head coverings were, were such a big deal. Basically, it came down, sorry, let me say this one last okay. thing and then jump in. Um, basically, what it came down to was like, if you were a married woman in particular, and you ever allowed yourself to be seen in improper dress, improper headwear, improper uh, hairstyles, that sort of thing, you brought shame and dishonor on the rest of your family. This is like shame and dishonor on your kids, shame and dishonor on your mama and your dad, shame and dishonor most especially on your husband. And, and we'll see how that plays out a little bit here in a few minutes. So if you're anything like me, you're sitting here listening to this thinking, like, this is crazy. Like, like how could how could women be treated like that? How could they live a life of 
like until you're married, you have to stay in your dad's, not just like you're in the house, like in the household family, but you're in the house, Mm -hmm. trapped, can't leave. Like some of those things come across as like nuts to me. But then I also have to switch into the mindset of culture, right? And even in today, where a a lot of things are more normalized, and especially in Western culture, we don't have to worry about these things. But even a lot of Eastern culture still operates like this and it's normal. And and we have to be aware of that. And like even when, when Daniel and I were moving to Canada for an entire year, our goal was to learn the culture. It was not to come up here as Americans and start an Amer- a Floridian church. Like that was not our goal because we knew that it wouldn't go over well. Our goal was to learn the, the nuances, the little things that we don't really know. And, and there's not a whole lot of difference, but it was some weird stuff. Like you go to Tim Hortons and he's like, can I get a two cream, two sugar? And she's like, a double double? Like, like little things that you just don't know. And but but there's drastic things from North America to India or the Middle East. Or yeah, wherever. and we still have we still have like standards. Like if some lady showed up in a bikini on Sunday morning. We would probably have to say something, right? We would say like that's, that's... actually happened. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent has. I'm not going to lie. First year, I'm not, I'm not kidding. We won't even say who it is because Somebody some of you know this person. Somebody showed up in her bathing suit yeah. to serve in kids, and we were like, "Nope, that's." And and she was like, like hey. "I'm going. I'm going to the lake after this." And it's like that ain't going to work. She's only wearing a bathing suit. Okay. Anyway, okay. anyway, we're getting off track. Um, so we, we still have these sorts of standards. We would say there's appropriate dress and inappropriate dress. And it extends to men and women, all these different things, right? Like um, there are some standards that we still hold to. In their society, though, if we're going to interpret Paul's words here in, in chapter 11, we have to understand the standard of expectation that was present at the time, okay? Paul tells Corinthian women that they should dress modestly according to their cultural standards so that they won't be confused with immoral women, so that they'll honor their family and husbands with how they present themselves, and they won't be a distraction during the worship service. That's the goal. That's the reason that he gets hung up on on head coverings. And some of these rules that Mm -hmm. you're telling, like, you know, the the way that you wear the hair, Mm -hmm. you wear it down, you wear it up, all those little things, to me, it comes across like in our time, like your your social media updates, like your profile, single, not single, you know, whatever, like like some of those things, a wedding ring, mm-hmm. like certain things are telling and those were their symbols. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, I see what you mean, like a status or something. On, yeah. yeah, I get it. And a, a head covering, like in Jewish times, um, women who were not married did not wear a head covering because you wanted men to see your beauty so that they would desire you and then propose. That's the way it worked. But once you got married, you actually needed to veil yourself, hide yourself a bit so that you wouldn't possibly seduce some other man. It's just the way the ancient world worked. So unmarried women weren't even allowed to come to church. No, they could, but they had to. um, So in the ancient Jewish synagogue, for instance, men and women were separated. There was actually a divider in the middle. Women sat on this side, men sat on this side. You couldn't see one another. Okay. Yeah. So, um, okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the interpretive issues here um, from 1 Corinthians 11. This is, again, the passage where Paul's talking about man is the head of the woman and they should be wearing head coverings and all that. What are some of the interpretive issues? Well, the first one has to do with whether or not Paul was speaking to men and women in general, or was he speaking to husbands and wives in particular? So if we go back here to um, verse number three, uh, in the ESV, it says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of her wife is her husband. You see how like we have the word wife, we have the word husband, we have woman, we have man. The the words jump back and forth, but in Greek, it's the same word every single time, okay? And that's because the Greek word for man, aner, it can either mean a guy or it can mean a husband. We have to let the context tell us which one it is. They use the same words, kind of confusing and not very great. Same thing with uh, woman. The the word is gyne or gune, which, you know, we get like gynecologists from. It's the same sort of thing, right? It's a woman and it could be simply a woman or it could be a wife. We have to let the, the text kind of tell us. What's very frustrating about this is that Paul doesn't really give us any clues as to whether or not he's talking about men and women in general. Like man is the head of woman in all case and every case. Or is he saying husband is the head of wife? Now, we're going to talk about what it even means to be the head here in a moment. But 
If you think about if he says man and woman in general, then we start to get to the point where complementarians are like, yeah, women cannot lead in any sphere. They can't be they can't be prime minister. They can't be CEO or any of that because man is the head of the woman. Right. So the woman can't ever be the head. Uh, if we take it to mean husband and wife, then we uh, we we focus this passage only in on home life. Right. Husbands and wives. Man is the priest of the home. We're going to spend a whole night talking about Ephesians five. And what does it mean specifically when it says man is the the head of the wife? And what's the relationship? What's a, a good biblical dynamic between a husband? And wife? We'll talk about all these different things. Um, but the first problem is we don't really know whether or not Paul is talking about men and women in general, or he's talking about husbands and wives in particular. You go to different translations. Some of them will be consistent in the passage. They will always speak about husbands and wives. Sometimes they will always speak about men and women in general, and they'll never talk about a marriage relationship. And then like the ESV, sometimes they jump back and forth and you're kind of like, but why though? It's the same word. So why is it husband here, but man there? Why is it wife here, but woman there? It gets a little weird and you have to start to ask questions about like um, bias in your interpretation and, and things like that. So that would be uh, interpretation or interpretive issue number one. Ideas, thoughts, questions on that one? Anything jump out at you there? Okay. Interpretive issue number two, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our, our time tonight, our teaching time anyway, is uh, what was Paul's intended meaning of the word that's translated head in this passage? So we see it here right away, verse number uh, three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Um, so we can we can kind of talk about what this word means. So the Greek word, it's even there in Greek. You're reading Greek tonight. Is kephale, kephale, K-E-P-H-A-L-E. That's the word that's translated head. And the most literal definition is like the head on a body. It is the biological head. That's what it means. So if you talk about the head of a snake, you'd be talking about the kephale of a snake, right? If you talk about some guy having a big head, you'd say, that dude's got a ginormous kephale, all right? It's literally the thing that sits on top of your shoulders. But if you think about it, when we talk or we use the, the phrase, man is the head of the woman, we're not talking about he is like the thing on her shoulders. We're not talking about the biological head. We're using that in a metaphoric sense. And the metaphoric sense can go in one of two directions, both of which are completely supported by the word itself. We have to let the context tell us which definition for the word we should use, okay? So kephale is the word. When you see head in this passage or in others, that's the word that's used. It's a noun, and it means, like I said, head. It can mean prominence. Prominence is the idea of the most visible, prominent. I know you're not supposed to use the word when you define a word, but like the thing that sticks out the most. Um, so like the, the top of a mountain is the prominence of a mountain. Or if you look at a church and they have a, a lightning um, rod, sometimes that's called the prominence. It's literally like the, the highest or most obvious thing about it. All right. And then the last way that this word is used, the last definition is source. That's the blank that, that you should fill in there, source. So it could mean head, biologically speaking, could mean prominence, and it could mean source. Now, when we talk about prominence, the way that that's interpreted often is uh, by complementarians to make kephale uh, mean something like leader or boss or superior, right? This is often how we read or we've heard this passage read, uh, man is the leader of woman. It says he's the head. He's in charge because the head is what makes the decisions. The head is the executive part of the body. Here's the problem with that. Nobody knew that the head was the executive part of the body for many thousands of years after this passage was written. If you go back and you read ancient Jewish writings, you read ancient Roman writings, it like it was 1500 years before we we knew there was a brain in there, but we didn't know what the brain did. We actually thought the heart, like the beating, bum, 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 bum. We thought the heart was the seat of your intellect and your guts were the seat of your emotions. We didn't understand digestion. We didn't understand blood flow. We thought your body had four fluids running through it. Nobody had any clue how any of this stuff worked. And in Paul's time, 
They didn't think of the head as the executive decision-making part of the body. That was the heart's job. And it wasn't even the feeling part of the body. That was like the bowels, the guts. Like I feel, And you can understand that. Like sometimes if you get really scared, you feel it down here because that's where your adrenaline glands are, right? So it makes sense that that's where they would feel uh, uh, emotions and, and feelings in their body and things like that. Um, so it's interesting um, that Kefale would be interpreted as head, executive, leader, superior, boss, something like that, when biologically speaking, that wasn't supported, at least at the time that this was written. Um, the second thing to consider here is the idea of boss or prominence, the, the one who's in charge. There are some times in which the Greek word kephale is inter- or it's translated that way, but they are the rare exceptions. It is very uncommon for kephale to ever be used in the sense of the one in charge. If you are the head, you're the one in charge. That's just not the way Jewish or Roman people thought. So there are a couple of circumstances where that does happen, mostly in the Old Testament, where, um, you know, like, uh, so what happened is like Greek speaking people were like, I can't read Hebrew. I need a copy of the Old Testament, but I need it in Greek so that I can read it. So they translated the Hebrew into the Greek and to what we call the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there are a couple of places where like a military leader is called the kephale, the head, the guy in charge, el jefe, right? There are a couple places, but like 10 times more often than that, the word kephale is translated head, but with the meaning of source, okay? Source. This is going to be the key to understanding this passage, source. So um, we use head in the, in the sense of source in English as well. So if we talk about the headwaters of a river, right? We talk about the headwaters of the Bow River being up at the glacier in the mountains. That's where it starts. That's its source. That's its headwaters. When we talk about making headway in something, we're like, we're beginning to make progress. This is the start of moving forward. So even in English, the word head can carry this connotation and meaning of beginning, start, source, first place, that sort of thing, okay? So we have to read uh, what Paul says here in this passage and decide, is he saying man is the head, the executive, the boss, the decision maker, the leader, the, the guy in charge, or is he saying man is the source of woman. And I think you can make a really, really convincing case that here and in Ephesians 5, the other place that Paul mentions this, he is using the word head as the source, not the one in charge. Okay. So let me show you a couple of things. Um, The first is this. Um, You can flip to the second page. This is where we're at now. We're going to look at some evidence that kephale means source and not boss or leader. Okay. Um, The first thing is that Paul's progression in verse three, where he says, you know, the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of Christ is God. That progression is chronological, chronological. That's what goes in your blank there. Um, What you would expect. So if Paul is using the word kephale to mean head, the one with authority, the person in charge, then you would expect him to give a chain or a progression of authority in either low to high or high to low, ascending or descending order. You would expect Paul to say here, if he had authority in mind, then you would expect him to say, God is the authority of Christ. Christ is the authority of man. Man is the authority of woman. That is a logical progression. We're going from greatest authority to least authority in this progression. You might also expect him to go the opposite way and say, uh, you know, a woman is in subjection to, she's subordinate to a man. A man is in subjection to Christ and Christ is subordinate to God. You would expect him to do that. He doesn't though. In verse three, he makes this really weird progression where he says, he starts with Christ and he says, Christ is the head of the man. Um, and, and so you could start with that and say, well, Christ is the boss of man. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yes, 100%. Okay. Then he says, the man is the head of the woman. And you could say, well, yeah, I mean, you could argue men have authority over women. They always have. And maybe that's the way it should be. I could see that tracking. And then you get to the last one. And now he goes back to the one who has the most authority after just talking about the one with the least authority. And he says, God is essentially the boss or the leader of Christ. 
Now that creates some really strange theological issues that we're going to talk about in a moment. But just from a logical construction, that doesn't fit and it doesn't flow if he has authority in mind. But it makes perfect sense if he has source in mind. Okay. So what he's doing here in verse number three is he is saying Christ is the source of man. So he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 126, where um, we read that God created man in his man and woman in his own image. Now you say, well, that says God. Of course, we read in John 1, 3, that Christ was the one who did the creating. There was nothing that was created back in the book of Genesis that wasn't created through Jesus. So Christ is the source of man. That's what he's saying. He's hearkening us back to the first chapter of Genesis. Then man is the source of woman. Because in Genesis 2.23, Adam is put into a deep sleep. His rib is provided, or his side is really what the translation says. And woman comes from man. That's why she's called woman. Woman means from or out of man. And then we go to um, the last portion where he says God is the head of Christ. But instead of thinking that in terms of executive or boss or leader, if we think of source, this makes sense. God is the source of Christ in the incarnation. In the incarnation. When Jesus came to earth, as a human, then he came from God to us. And we see the exact progression that Paul lays out here in verse number three. It starts with Christ creating man, then it goes to man being the source for woman, and finally uh, God being the source for Christ coming to us. And you can see that spelled out very clearly in John 16, 28. And while we're on this subject, I want to kind of dive into a different thought. So we read in um, 1 Corinthians 11, we read a big chunk, but I want to just dive into verse seven. It's So he was reading from the ESV. I'm going to read from the source of the ESV, the NRSV. Uh, uh, Verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. So in the ESV, that word reflection was actually glory of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. And for this reason, a woman ought not to have a symbol of authority or head. So so I want to focus on that word reflection and talk about the image of God for a second. So in Genesis, it talks about how we humans are made in the image of God. But then in the ESV, when it's talking about glory, and, and especially when he's talking about it's it's very obvious that a complementarian view here is focused more on, well, it's God, then man, then woman. And it, it's making a very obvious, like, man is over woman and not equal, not in the same glory, not in the same image. Man was made in the image of God, and then woman was made from the image of man, like secondary. So what you're saying essentially is reading it through a complementarian lens causes Paul to contradict what we've already read in Genesis 1 and 2. So it makes them disagree, which we know the Bible doesn't do. Right. And so if we are all made in the image of God, this the, the source of the ESV, what we read the first time, it makes we were the reflection. Right, we we are in the image. We are in the same image of God and man and women. And the same time, like we are all in the image of God, and it's not like it goes along with this this line of thought that you're building on right here. And I think that um, I don't know. We can get lost in in some of the some of these details, but it's so important for us to stay on the right path of what Paul was actually trying to say. Well, yeah, I think it goes back to what we said at the beginning, where it's like we've got to read individual verses and passages in the greater context of Scripture, right? So if a particular interpretation ever causes us to uh, make one of the biblical authors in conflict with a former biblical author, then we know we've gotten something wrong. Like that's like because the Scriptures should be cohesive in, in our understanding and interpretation. So um, we see that Paul's progression here in verse 3 was chronological. It makes total sense for him to write it the way he does if kephale or kephale is the source and not the head. Um, the source meaning is supported by verses 11 and 12. Um, so uh, if we go to 11 and 12 here, just notice what Paul says here. Uh, he says, um, nevertheless, he says, the Lord is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as man, uh, sorry, for as woman was made from man, 
So man is now born of woman and all things are from God. So we see here, we've got the same kind of like three-part designation in this verse that we had back in um, verse number one, where it's man, woman, and the Godhead. And here very clearly in 11 and 12, Paul is talking in terms of source, right? So the first woman came from a man, but from then on, every single man has come from a woman. So there's an interdependence that's there. And Paul says, don't forget, everything, including all of you, come from God himself. So source is supported by the context that this passage is written in. And then others as well, like um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 8. Colossians 1, 8 says this. Let me see if I can get it here on the screen. Colossians 1, 8 says, um, and Christ, where am I? Christ is the kephale of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so that in everything, he might be preeminent, right? This is another passage where we see the word kephale, the head. It says Christ is the head of the church. And if you read what the what Paul is talking about here, that, that head metaphor is talking about source. He's the source of the church. He's the firstborn. He's the one that basically gave birth to it is essentially what he's kind of saying here. Um, so that in everything, he might have the preeminence. He's prominent. He's first and, and foremost out of it. So the source meeting, meaning is supported both by the immediate context and the larger context. Uh, the next blank there, source was the interpretation of the early church fathers. Church fathers is the blank. So if we go back and we read, like there um the vast majority of early church fathers didn't interpret the word kephale as head, boss, leader, dude in charge. They interpreted it as source, okay? So Athanasius, John Chrysostom, Basil, Theodore, Eusebius, Cyril, Photius, all these guys that are well-known writers from the first few centuries of the church, they would write on these passages and they would talk about kephale as being source and not boss. Okay. Um, and then the last thing, and I've already hinted at this, so I'm not going to drag this out too much, but if we interpret this word head or kephale, if we interpret it as leader, then we give rise to a very controversial understanding of the Trinity. Okay. So if we say Christ or rather God is the head of Christ, then how does that jibe with the fact that we believe the Godhead is co-substantial, co-eternal, right? Co-substantial means they have the same substance. They're the same. You couldn't divide them if you wanted to. They have the same will. There is no difference. There is no division among them. But if we say that Christ is somehow subordinate to God, God is the leader and Christ has to do what the Father says eternally, then we are saying that he is of some substance that is less in function than the Father. The, the issue with that is that the early church dealt with this. This was called the Arian heresy, and the, the uh, Council of Nicaea dealt with this in the fourth century. Like way back in the beginning of the church, we said any doctrine that would argue that Christ is less than the Father should be rejected, that that actually puts you outside the bounds of orthodoxy because it denies the Trinity. You might be saying, well, wait a sec here. There are plenty of places in scripture where Jesus like said, I have to do what the father tells me to do. And what about the time he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And what about the fact that it says like Christ emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant and in Philippians two and, and things like that. So like, it seems pretty clear that he was subject to the father. So ortho, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? In uh, the, the orthodox view, Jesus, who is co-eternal and co-substantial with the Father, okay, he had all, he was perfect in union with the Father. He had all the authority, all the power, all the knowledge. He chose to empty himself of that in the incarnation. This is what we read in Philippians 2. He didn't think that equality with God was something to be held on to. Instead, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant and he came to earth, right? Um, so Jesus actually, in his humanity, was subject to the Father while here on earth. But from an orthodox perspective, this is what the church has believed for millennia, once the resurrection happened, Jesus regained or retook the authority and glory and place with the Father that he rightly deserved, okay? If we believe, so notice in this passage, Paul is writing after the resurrection. This is after the resurrection, and he's writing in the present tense. So he says, 
the head of Christ is God right now. So what he's saying there is at that point, if we take this to mean leader, God is still the head and Christ is still subordinate. So this has been called the eternal subordination of the son. That's the blank that goes in there, eternal. So the orthodox belief is Christ was functionally subordinate to the father for the 33-ish years that he was here on earth, and that was necessary to accomplish the plan of salvation. But in eternity past and throughout eternity present, he is completely in union, one in substance and will with his heavenly father. But complementarians, now not all of them, I'd say about half of them, take this reading of this exact passage where it says God is the head of Christ, and they say, well, women should be in subjection to men because Christ is in eternal subjection to the Father. Does that make sense? It's an eternal subjugation of the Son under the will of the Father. But that has been rejected in church history as heresy. Like, this is... I, you can make an argument that's like, no, it's not quite the same as Arianism. It's not, but it's so darn close. It makes me really uncomfortable. Like, I don't think we need to play around with that. And I don't think the rest of the scriptural evidence bears it out either. Okay. So um, that, that's the interpretive issue with um, Kephale and it meaning head. Uh, we will circle back to this issue when we deal with Ephesians 5 and we're dealing with like household co codes and like Christian marriages and all those different things. We'll deal with that. Um, but let's keep moving real quick. Uh, the third interpretive issue is who does Paul say has the authority in verse number 10? Who does Paul say has the authority? Well, it depends on which translation you're reading. Because some translations are going to make it seem like the woman has the authority. Most will make it seem like the man has the authority. Sometimes it seems like Paul is claiming the authority. And then there's this weird statement about the angels. Do they have authority? Let me just point out here. If you read a couple of different translations, you're going to get a vastly different perspective on what Paul means, okay? So if we read the Good News translation, which, hey, whatever, it's the Good News. Nobody's taking this thing super seriously. I get it, okay? But if you read the Good News translation, um, and, and listen, the Good News translation is not exactly like a conservative, reformed, um, complementarian text. Nobody's using this thing. But if you read the way they translated verse 10, it says, on account of the angels, then a woman should have a covering over her head to show that she is under her husband's authority. Okay. Wow. All right. So who has the authority according to that verse? The husband does. Problem is the word husband doesn't occur in that verse in any way, shape or form. They borrowed it from another section and they're like, oh, well, Paul is clearly talking about the husband. Well, if he's clearly talking about the husband, why didn't he say the husband? He didn't. Okay. If we go to the new international version which is a modest and moderate translation. It's kind of middle of the road. It says, it's for this reason that a woman ought to have the authority over her own head because of the angels. So who has the authority according to the New International Version? The woman does, right? And we could go on. I could show you other examples where it's like, no, nobody's quite sure exactly how it should be translated. But I'll say this, the, the Greek is very straightforward and very simple. It says, for this reason, because of the angels, a woman should have authority over her head. That's the literal Greek reading of it. Now, a woman should have authority over her head could be interpreted as a woman should be in charge of what she puts on her head. She should choose. And actually, that interpretation makes a ton of sense for what Paul is saying here. Because in this passage, Paul is never, he never commands women to wear a head covering. He doesn't command them. He doesn't say, you have to do it, do it. He doesn't say that. What he does instead is he tries to convince them, convince them that they should. He could have pulled rank. He could have said, I'm an apostle. He could have said, I'm your pastor. I founded your church. You're in Jesus because of me. If I tell you the Lord wants you to wear a head covering, you need to wear a head covering. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he tries to convince them. Why? It goes back to the larger context that we were talking about with 1 Corinthians here, where believers are choosing to lay down their rights or their authority. Now, the word right and authority in the English Bible come from the exact same Greek word. 
and it's translated differently in different parts. So earlier in chapter nine, Paul talks about how he has laid down his rights as an apostle, and he'll do whatever he can to reach people. He'll become like the Jews. He'll become like the Gentiles and Greeks. He'll do whatever he can so that by all means, he might reach some. He lays down his rights, and then here he talks basically to women about laying down your authority. You're free in Christ. Could you go without a head covering? Totally. Should you go without a head covering? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? Because if they're going to be unbelievers that walk in and they see these Christian women just wild, you know what I mean? Like dressed in ways that you're like, wait, what? So like, imagine if you guys were like, uh, you guys, uh, of women in our church were like, I'm going to come wearing a bikini and everybody's going to do it. We're all going to do it. And it's like, could you? Yeah. Is it sin? I mean, I don't think it's a great idea. Can I prove that it's sin from scripture? Maybe not. Um, and then we have visitors and they're like, what the heck? I already thought this place was a cult and now I'm convinced, right? Okay, so in that circumstance, maybe women should choose not to push the envelope as far as they could, but instead for the sake of the gospel witness and for the unity of the church, they choose to do something that they might not have to do in Christ, but they choose to do it for the sake of Christ. Paul uses this same pattern of argumentation when it comes to eating meat sacrificed to idols. He uses the same pattern when it comes to exercising our spiritual gifts. We're going to see this same thought line continue in uh, chapter 14. And then also when we get to 1 Timothy 2, in which Paul is essentially saying, look, there you can do any number of things, but what would be the most loving thing for you to do in terms of your community? terms of your family, your relationship with your husband or your father or your sisters or whatever the case may be. That is his goal here. That's why the authority question doesn't even matter all that much. Um, ultimately, we can say the woman is the one with the authority. The, the scripture says that the woman has authority over her head. You could interpret that as like the man has put a sign of authority on you, your mind, claim, dibs. You could say it that way, but you could also look at it as now, ladies, you've been given freedom and authority. How will you use it? What will you do with it? How can we honor Christ with the way that we present ourselves? And look, he's going to say the same sorts of things to men. He will say the same sorts of things to them. So it's not just about women or anything like that, right? It, it makes me really appreciate, and I, I think we've said this in past um, teachings, but like it had to have been really difficult in this culture for Paul for Paul to actually walk the line of love and to have the woman in mind, because it would have been easy to step over the line and, and just dismiss women altogether mm -hmm. from church, from leadership. from. But he was balancing a line of culture mm -hmm. and making sure he didn't dismiss because the, he knew the church had a future. Totally. So right? let's not overlook the fact that here in this passage, verse number four, he says, every man who prophesies, he needs to do it this way. Every woman who prophesies and prays in the public service, she needs to do it this way. We want to focus on the, well, this is what you're supposed to do, and ignore the fact that Paul is telling women to pray publicly, to prophesy publicly in the ministry or in the public worship service. That was huge. Jewish women were not allowed to do that. They were not. So like in the synagogue down the road, women were kept on the other side of the divider, and they had to be fully veiled, and they had to be quiet, and all of these different things. And then here in the Christian church, Women suddenly have opportunity that they have never had in, in, in the um, family of God, so to speak. And so we're going to see how that plays out in some negative ways next week in 1 Corinthians 14, when women are kind of like gobbling up this newfound freedom and authority, and they're using it in ways that are unhealthy for the rest of the church. So we, we've but, got to finish. No, nope, we're going to finish. Did you say, why the heck the angels? Uh, okay, so uh, yes, I'll do that as quick as I could. Sorry. Um, all right. Nobody really knows. Uh, Paul, he's not talking about angels. There's no mention of angels um, for like several chapters, okay? So we could kind of go back and try to make a connection, but that doesn't really seem to make sense. So there are likely two ways that Paul is using this, okay? So the first one is the non-supernatural one. And it's basically like the word angel, angelos in Greek, it literally means messenger. That's it. It doesn't mean like winged creature from the nether realms. It just means messenger. And sometimes humans are called messengers, all right? Um, people who come, they deliver a word or whatever. It's possible that Paul was using angel as messenger, human messenger, and we have mistranslated that to mean supernatural being. And so he's like, look, when messengers, that is people from the outside world come in 
and they're going to go report to the Roman government what you guys are doing. They're going to see that you guys are flouting all these customs, and that's going to be really dangerous for you guys. So that's one. The second goes back to the book of Genesis, and there is a theory from Genesis 6 that um, that there was a point in history in which angels, actually demons in their rebellion against God, took on human form and actually had relations with women, like human women. And then they produced babies that were called the Nephilim, and supposedly they were half you know, angel, half man, and it, it gets pretty wild. Um, this is a pretty, like, I know that sounds nuts and kind of ridiculous, but honestly, that's been the major interpretation of that passage throughout Jewish and Christian history. Uh, the book of Enoch, which is like um, uh, uh, an apocryphal writing, that's what it deals with. If you ever watch the movie called Noah with Russell, I think it's Russell Crowe, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, from like a while back, and you're like, where did they get all this stuff? That's from the book of Enoch. It includes this um, Jewish kind of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking, mythology that that came up alongside it. So essentially, if that is what Paul had in mind, he was telling ladies, you have to keep your hair covered because you might entice angels to do to you guys today what they did back in Genesis 6, all right? Do I believe that's what he meant? I don't know. I don't, I, like, this is one of those weird things where it's like, who knows? None of the interpretations of this passage turn on that little phrase because of the messengers or because of the angels. Um, so I, nobody really knows. It's like people will argue vocally for either one. Um, go with whichever one you think is most interesting. Okay, <laughs> last thing, we're, we're going to be done. And then I, I do want to give you guys a chance to, to ask questions or whatever. So basically in this passage, Paul lists four reasons that a woman should wear a head covering. Okay, so the first is verses three through six where he talks about honor and dishonor for themselves and family. This is about like presenting yourself well as a proper woman in society, bringing shame and dishonor on your husband. This is what this is what he means when he's talking about glory. Um, he's like, ladies, you can bring glory or shame to your husband. That's, you know, you have the choice based on how you want to handle this sort of thing. So he gives them one reason. It's honor and dishonor for their self and family. And I want you to notice that's a cultural reason. Okay. That's a cultural reason that they should wear head coverings because uh, although women can bring shame and honor and glory to themselves, they don't do it in the same way. These particular pinning your hair up, wearing a headdress, keeping your arms covered. Those are not culturally appropriate ways for us to bring glory and shame in the 21st century. Then in verses seven through 12, he offers up the order of creation. Okay. So woman was formed from man. Uh, we're going to see later in first Timothy two, he, he says, look, you know, man was formed first, then the woman, the woman was deceived first, then the man, that sort of thing. And so we could argue that he provides a transcultural reason for head coverings here, meaning this is a reason that's grounded in something larger than the immediate culture. And if that's the case, then you could argue that head coverings should go beyond the immediate culture. Okay. He references natural biology in verse number 14. He, he says, you know, ladies, don't you realize you already have a head covering? You, you, you've got this long, beautiful hair that men don't have. We lose our hair. You know what I'm saying? But you keep yours. You're lucky. You're fortunate. You've already got a head covering. So why would you fight against it? This is part of like the beauty that God has given you in a sense. And so this is why Paul kind of gives this reductio ad absurdum where he's like, if you don't want to cover your head, then get rid of your hair because hair is functionally a covering. All right. So that's the argument that he's making there in verse number 14. You can dislike that argument, but that's the argument he's making. Um, and that uh, that is also transcultural. That is true of women throughout time and history, not just the Corinthian women. And then he references church tradition. So he's like, look, all the churches I planted, ladies wear head coverings because we're in the Roman world and that's what's expected. So all the other churches are doing it. If you want to fight with me about it, just know you're the only ones that are not following the custom. That's a cultural reason. So check this now. Paul gives four reasons. Half of them are cultural. Half of them are transcultural. Does anybody believe that Paul requires, 1 Corinthians 11, requires women to wear the same sort of head covering today in 2022 in Canada? You must not, because none of you are. Even complementarians would say like, oh no, that was just for them. Okay, so this is going to be important. Paul uses transcultural, timeless, theological arguments, arguments that are based in Genesis, based in the Bible. He uses those kind of arguments to make a temporary command for one of his churches. Do you see this? 
We all agree it's temporary, and we all agree he's using timeless transcultural reasons for this temporary restriction. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to give these exact same reasons in chapter 14 when he says women need to be silent. And in 1 Timothy 2, when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach. Those same reasons are going to be present there. So the fact that Paul references Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as a reason to do whatever he needs to do doesn't mean that what he's asking in the passage is necessarily for all times and all people. Does that make sense? This, this is a pattern that we're establishing now that we're going to reference when we get there next week. 